Good morning, friends. This is our class, The Reign of Life. It is Sunday morning, October 18th. And we are uh, exploring two verses in Romans 8, where Paul writes in 8, 12, and 13, So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh, so live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you, are, you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. We have been exploring what that means and what that looks like, putting to death the deeds of the body, and we've been framing it in terms of idolatry, one way to think about sin. So that's, we're going to continue in the handout. I'm going to call it up here in a second, but let me pray for us. <clears throat> Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you for my brothers and sisters. Thank you for our unity in Christ. Thank you that we share the spirit and the spoils of Christ's victory for us. Thank you that we belong to him, the king of the universe, our savior, the creator, the one who has gone to glory to prepare a place for us, and he can't wait to have us with him. Thank you, Lord, that we belong to each other, and we are with each other in this fight against indwelling sin. And Lord, we fight as those who are sure of the victory because of Jesus. We look to him, not our abilities, not how well we're fighting sin. We trust Christ, and in so doing, we pray for power through the Holy Spirit and through the Word of God and through the understanding and wisdom you would give us to win this war increasingly on a daily basis. So help us now, Spirit, come. Come, you're the same one that helps us put to death the deeds of the flesh. Give us grace and wisdom and understanding for the glory of Jesus. Amen. I'm going to go to screen share and pull up the handout. And it is right there. Okay, and I'm going to make my picture smaller. Everybody see that okay? Yes, okay, I'll trust that's the case. Jan, if I forget to scroll down, be my reminder gal. Thank you. So one way to uh, sum up what Paul has been saying thus far in the book of Romans is there are only two kinds of people in the world. If you're the person you were born into this world from your mommy's womb, if you're that person... You are at peace with sin and correspondingly at war with God. Although sin essentially hides that fact from you. However, if through faith in Jesus Christ, if by faith in Jesus Christ, we are at peace with God through the spoils of Jesus' warfare, not our own. Christians are those who are at peace with God and are at war with sin. Sin is at war with you. You woke up this morning in a raging conflict, not just with the devil, the world, but also the enemy within, indwelling sin. So we are looking at the nature of that battle from the perspective of idolatry. And just a quick review for you, I thought these two quotes from Stephen Charnock and Dave Pallison would be very helpful to review. What are we talking about essentially? These two quotes kind of get to the heart of it and then we'll move down into the questions below in the handout. Stephen Charnock writes, and this is regarding idolatry, each person acts as if God could not make him happy without the addition of something else. And obviously that something else is an idol. Thus the glutton makes a god of his dainties, the ambitious man of his honor, the incontinent man of his lust, the covetous man of his wealth, consequently esteems them as his chiefest good. So that's what makes it a small g God. That's what makes it an idol, a God substitute. 
and the most noble end to which he directs his thoughts. All men worship some golden calf, set up by education, custom, natural inclination, and the like. Very helpful. And then Dave Allison writes, the most basic question which God proposes to each human heart is this, has something or someone besides Jesus the Christ taken title to your heart's functional trust, preoccupation, loyalty, service, fear, and delight? The following questions bring some of people's idol systems to the surface and thus bear on the immediate motivation of my behavior, thoughts, and feelings. So Dave Pallison is showing us that all our behavior is motivated by the need to get something, and that thing that we need is the thing that we serve, and that thing that we tell us we need ultimately functions as our God. If you woke up this morning desperate for the Lord to show up in your life, if you woke up this morning realizing sin will get the better of me if Jesus doesn't show up by the power of his spirit, if you woke up this morning running to Jesus saying, left to myself, I will ruin my relationship to my life, if you run to Jesus for grace and look to him alone as your heart's functional trust, preoccupation, loyalty, service, fear, and delight, you're being saved from the idols of your heart. So Dave Allison writes, in the Bible's conceptualization, the motivation question is the lordship question. Who or right rules my behavior? The Lord or an idol? And we looked at a couple of these questions last week, the first two, and we'll just continue right through the list this morning and on through the handout. Here's, here's some questions that help you identify where your idol structure is, how it's functioning, what's at the heart of it. Because you've got to see this or those things are going to get the better of you, and if they get the better of you, they're going to get the better of the people around you. And they're going to soil your relationship with Jesus. To what or whom do you look for life-sustaining stability, security, and acceptance? So there's a ton of ways to answer that question. Obviously, the biblical answer is Jesus. But we find substitutes for Jesus, and oftentimes we, in our heads, give assent to, oh yeah, Jesus is the one who gives me life-sustaining stability, security, and acceptance. But other things creep into that. It's like we're dating two people at the same time. <clears throat> what do you really want and expect out of life? Well, that thing then becomes a demand or a must. The thing you really want ends up being a, 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 a something you tell yourself, this is a lie, video. you tell yourself that you must have. Now, here are the new sets of questions we didn't see uh, last two weeks ago. What would make you an acceptable person? So however you answer that question begins to get at some of the things that drive you, that motivate you, that you find as your significance and security. Where do you look for power and success? What's your greatest nightmare? So remember back to junior high. What was my greatest nightmare? Having a pimple show up on my face. Why? Well, I desperately wanted to fit in. I desperately wanted to look like a normal guy. And in my thinking, a pimple compromised that. My dad had all of his boys getting hair, our hair cut much shorter than everyone else in our culture at the time. Everyone was starting to grow long hair when I was in junior high. 
So our hair was much shorter. And so when dad, when we heard those words from dad, we're going to the barber shop. It struck terror in our souls. What was that telling us about what we felt we needed, where we found our security, our significance? In our appearance, we wanted to fit in. We wanted to have longer hair like everybody else. We didn't want to stand out. What's your greatest nightmare? So for me as a preacher, I sometimes have a nightmare that I'm called to go preach somewhere. And I can't find my notes. I can't find my belt. I can't find my glasses. I'm, I'm ill-prepared. So what's going on in that nightmare? What's that tell you about uh, is most important to me? Looking confident. Because if I don't have my notes, I'm not going to preach well. If I don't preach well, I look incompetent. And actually, in my idol structure, it goes deeper than simply a competence idol. I do have that competence idol. But I believe the idol that's fueling that one is acceptance and approval. So if I, appear, I don't appear competent, you won't like me. And that's one of the idols that most captures my heart, the need to be liked, to be approved of. So I've annexed being viewed as competent to that idol. What's your greatest nightmare? What do you worry about most? What if you lost it would make you want to die, right? Shrivel up like a wicked wisdom glass. Ah, what a world, what a world, what a world. What is the thing that it would make you feel like that? A lot of different ways to answer this question. You need to know that about your soul. You need to think about it. If you're not sure, ask people around you. They interact with you. Oftentimes, others see our idols before we do. Uh, how do I comfort myself when things get difficult? <clears throat> how do I medicate myself? Where, where do I run? So oftentimes, those aren't bad things. But when you make it the thing your soul must have in that difficult situation, that's your God. And all of those things are going to fail you, as we'll see a little bit later this morning. Take this away, and I lose my worth. How do you fill in the blank? Okay, you might add this if you want to, if you're taking notes, before we get into some examples of idols. Uh, one or two more questions. Does what you dream about eclipse God? So, for example, I could easily dream about having a house at the beach and just beachcombing all day for the rest of my life. So what is that with my wife? What's that all about? It's just all about me. That dream eclipses God. Now, God may call you to do that. I, I, it's not my position to say whether or not God has called you to do that. But for me, I know this. God's given me energy and vitality and health to serve him in some way while I'm able to. I have good friends who've been in ministry, most of them eight to 10 years longer than me, and, and they've continued to serve the Lord with their gifts, sometimes ratcheting back to part-time, but I really admire their staying power and the vision for their life to be of service to the kingdom. Maybe that focus shifts, but their dream isn't, isn't eclipsing God and who God's called them to be and how he's called them to serve them. Or another, another um, question um, on your dream. Does your dream make you more like Christ or more selfish? Does your dream empower you to fulfill the two great commandments? Love God, love others. So what do you dream about? Does it eclipse God? Let's move down and look at some examples of idols. 
This is uh, stealing from Tim Keller's handout in his workbook on Romans. So let's give credit where credit is due. So here's some examples. Power idolatry. You're telling yourself life only has meaning. I only have worth if. So every idol begins with those words. And it's the, the, what comes after the if that identifies the, the thing where you're, uh, you're, you're small g God, your idol. If I have influence and power over others. So this is the person who's, who gets a demotion from being in charge of whatever and they want to kill themselves because they've lost the thing they live for, having influence and power over others. If that's an, your idol, you'll be driven to have that. Now, does God call people to leadership positions? Absolutely. God gifts leaders. And the faithful steward of that gifts does so with an eye to serving Jesus. Think of how Paul talks about at the end of Colossians there. You serve the Lord, not man, knowing that he's the one that's given you the gifts and put you in that place. Serve him faithfully in that position of leadership. But you don't wake up in the morning saying to yourself, life only has meaning if I have this position. No, life only has meaning. I only have worth if what? I have Jesus, and we do. Approval idolatry. Life only has meaning. I only have worth if I'm loved and respected by so it might be anyone else. People typically have a pecking order, right? right? So for me, the more I know someone, the more I love them and value their friendship, the more important it is for me to have their love and respect and approval. Somebody's way down to the pecking order may not care so much. That might even give me license to be rude or disrespectful to someone that I didn't know. That wouldn't be a good thing. What do I owe that person? Love. Show them the love of Christ. Comfort idolatry. Life only has meaning. I only have worth if I have this kind of pleasure experience, a particular quality of life. Uh, we learned about how easy it is to lose that in 2008 when, our, when the stock market crashed and a lot of us lost maybe half of our retirement, et cetera, et cetera. Comfort, comfort, comfort. Image idolatry. Life only has meaning. I only have worth if I have a particular kind of look or body image. So checking out at the supermarket, looking at the tabloids, you get a good sense of that. Control idolatry. Life only has meaning. I only have worth if I'm able to get mastery over my life in the area of, or I'm able to control others. So some of you may have grown up in a very controlling household, either by your mom or your dad, and you felt smothered by that. Um, you know, the goal of parenting, I think, biblically is to... Is to train children to become responsible decision makers on their own, to take control of their lives under, under the Lord's, Lord's lordship. So some of us smother other people trying to control them. Not good for you, not good for them. Helping idolatry. Life only has meaning, I only have worth if people are dependent on me and need me. So is there anything wrong with helping people? No. So, uh, God gives some people the gift of helps. It's, it is more blessed to give than to receive. So to have a helping mentality is a very biblical thing. Jesus came to serve and not to be served. That's a helping mentality. But if I, if I make it the thing that I live for, and all of a sudden I'm not in a position of being able to help people, and I feel like shriveling up and dying, I have made that an idol. And my life is dependent on it. And, my, and the truth is my life is not dependent on it. My life is dependent on the only thing that can ever fail me, Jesus, power through his spirit. 
Independence idolatry. Life only has meaning. I only have worth if I'm free from obligations and responsibilities. It's very attractive to some of us. Think about why. What about my upbringing? What about the ways I've been hurt? What about what I've been taught? How I've reacted to different difficult life situations? Maybe you got, maybe you got in a situation where you concluded, by George, I'll never ever get to the place where I'm dependent on anybody else. Well, you might have learned that through a very painful, difficult situation. That may not be the right conclusion. So all these painful situations ultimately drive us to the one who cannot fail us, Jesus, the one on whom we depend, and then we're free to enjoy times when we don't have obligations and responsibilities. And then we're free to fulfill obligations and responsibilities in a, re, in a godly way. Dependence idolatry. Life only has meaning. Uh, I only have worth if I have someone to protect and keep me safe. Again, at one level, there's nothing wrong with wanting to be protected and kept safe. But if Let's suppose there's a wife whose husband needs to travel some for his work, and she essentially makes him pay. She forbids him to travel. Or he's, he's driving home late at night from an assignment, 3 a.m., putting his life at risk because his wife is demanding that in an unreasonable way. Okay? That discussion needs to be had. Is this an idol? Relationship idolatry. My life has meaning. I only have worth if... I'm in love with Mr. or Mrs. Wright. So this is the person, maybe you knew, knew them in high school, they were always dating somebody. They broke up with so-and-so, next week they're dating next, the next person. They broke up with them, they're dating. It's like, I gotta have somebody in my life. Well, there is the person who'll never let you down. The only person in the universe who can fill that void in you for relationship is Jesus. Safe and deeply in love with Jesus, you're now free to have a really healthy relationship with Mr. or Mrs. Sinful. And I've listed some more potential idolatry places too. Achievement, materialism, racial, cultural identity, you can make an idol out of that. Being in the inner ring, make an idol out of your family. And ideology, and the list goes on and on and on. So it's it's the thing that you, 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 what do you, ask yourself this question, what do you most need to tell others about yourself? What do you feel most needful to let others know about you? How do you want to be known? Do you want to be known as? You know, fill in the blank. Okay. Let's deconstruct our idols from this perspective. They fail you, they jail you, they pale in comparison to what you have in the gospel. What do I mean they fail you? Well, they never make good on their promises, right? Are your idols promised to give you life, satisfaction? And they just never do. I'm thinking of that uh, verse in Hebrews 11 where Moses is said in Egypt to forgo the passing pleasures of sin and bear the reproaches and identify with the reproaches of Christ. So sin has its passing pleasures, but they never make good on their promise. Just their passing. They jail you. They always demand more. Think about that uh, verse in Hebrews 12 where we're called to run the race of faith, casting off the sin that so easily entangles us. 
sin, sin, there's never, a, when you give yourself over to an idol, your idol's always knocking on the door of your heart every morning saying, let's do this again, let's do this again, more, more, more. And they pale, all your idols pale in comparison to what you have in the gospel. So in Proverbs 3 and 8, Lady Wisdom, that's a personification of Jesus Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Lady Wisdom says, nothing you desire compares with me. That means take all human desires, good ones. And again, an idol is a good desire made the desire, the one that's above everything else that you must have even, even if you know and believe in God. Lady Wisdom says, nothing you desire compares with me. So take all your desires, and you're really not safe spiritually. You're really not healthy spiritually. You're really not going to be able to battle idolatry until you believe that with all your heart. Nothing I desire, all fine desires, compare with Jesus. Nothing I desire compares with Jesus. That's why... Bible-believing churches week in and week out in their worship services are trying to exalt and lift up Jesus so that we fall in love with him again. We get fresh visions of him every Sunday together. And then we do that in our home groups. We do that in our Bible studies. We do that in our marriages. We do that in our one-on-one relationships. So one question we ought to be asking each other, how is your relationship with Jesus? Is he more satisfying than the good things God has given you in your life? Isn't it interesting that God entrusts us with money, freedom, time, lots of talent, lots of intellect, lots of ability. He entrusts us with so many things, knowing we're going to be tempted and sorely fall loving those things more than himself. Boy, is he patient. He is so kind. He's so generous. Nothing I desire compares with you. That takes work. It takes time. It takes prayer. It takes the Holy Spirit to convince us of those things. Okay, let's talk about loosening the grip of idols with the gospel. Here's a quote I stole from somebody. Sorry, I don't know the exact source. The faith that is able to warm itself at the fire of God's love, instead of having to steal love and self-acceptance from other sources, is actually the root of holiness. Isn't that good? That is just such a helpful picture of what we're doing when we put anything in our lives in the place of the love of God. We're stealing Love and acceptance from other sources actually becomes a false gospel, or idols do. So the faith that's able to warm itself, make itself uh, uh, viable, real, at the fire of God's love, that faith doesn't have to steal anywhere else. Why? Because the love of, there's nothing better than the love of God. And it's an interesting, back in chapter 5, Paul told us the love of God has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. What a great foundation for then helping Christians struggle with the reality of idols and sin. If by the Spirit you're putting to death the deeds of the flesh, you will live. So Spirit, bring me the love of God. Make it afresh. Make it a fire kindled in me every day. Right? 
Satisfy us in the morning with your loving kindness, and we will rejoice and be glad all our days. So you want to see how Christ is better than what your idols seem to promise. Think about what you have in the gospel. Your idols promise rest for your soul. No, in the gospel, our souls have the ultimate rest of peace with God. And our souls are restless until they find the rest in God. That's one of the reasons why God allows us to be dissatisfied with anything else but him. He allows our lives to go south. He allows lives to crash and burn. He allows us to become miserable, even though we're filled with all kinds of things, all kinds of good things. He allows that because he wants our souls to find their rest in the Lord. Righteousness. Uh, your idols can give you a sense of being good, acceptable, and right. What do you have in the gospel? You have the imputed perfect righteousness of Jesus. You could never improve upon it. It makes you spotless, beautiful in the sight of God. Think on that. Think on that. Reflect on that. How beautiful the righteousness of Christ makes you in God's sight. Then all these idols begin to wane and lose their luster. Acceptance, right? Through Jesus we're loved and cherished. The promise of the gospel is... God will forever treat you as if you have done everything Jesus has done. And how is God treating his son? His beloved risen son seated at his right hand. That's why Paul says in Colossians 2, we've been raised up with Christ, seated with him at his right hand. That's the implications of union with Christ. We're as loved and cherished in the Father's eyes as is Jesus. It's often too hard to believe. And here's the point. The more you love your idols, the less you'll believe that. Your idols will demand a love and an affection for you. That, again, is going to pale, jail, and fail you where the love of Jesus won't. Your idols tend to promise you resources. But the truth is you have unbridled power through the Spirit. Through the Spirit, you're free from people and circumstances for finding your worth, your hope, and your stability. It's just we have people in our lives that we are sad for, we grieve for, because they're struggling so pitifully to find their value in things they can't control. And it's tragic. It's sad. Oh, we want to have our, our value found in the one who controls all things, the Lord God. So it's no wonder Paul writes in 2 Thessalonians 3.5 this prayer, May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and the steadfastness of Christ. What a picture. Think of this love of God and steadfastness of Christ as an oven and your heart as an uncooked piece of dough or something. Lord, here's my heart. I want to direct it. Lord, direct my heart into the love of God, the steadfastness of Christ. And in that oven environment, it begins to warm and bake and, and smell differently. And your life then is an aroma to others of the love of God and the fastness of Christ. So what does this imply about how you're to care for your heart? With a reminder that the famous theologian John Calvin said the heart is a veritable manufacturer of idols. <laughs> it's like nonstop chunking them out. <laughs> this is a battle you're going to fight to the day you die. Right? As long as indwelling sin is, with a, it is within us, we're going to wake up at war with sin because sin's at war with us. We're going to fight that battle to the day we die. That's what a Christian is. A Christian fights sin daily until they die. We need each other in this fight. 
So think about this verse from Proverbs 28, 14. Blessed is the one who fears the Lord always. Always. Take away the fear of the Lord, what's going to happen? Your idols are ready to step in and control you and demand of you allegiance. Blessed is the one. This is the blessed life. The fear of the Lord. That's just this honor, respect, the sense of awe, the sense of being awestruck at his ravishing beauty. Nothing I desire compares with you. Oh, that's what the heart that fears the Lord says. Nothing I desire compares. Take all the beautiful colors of fall. Nothing compares. All the most delicious things that God gives us. Nothing compares. Blessed is the one who fears the Lord always. Here's the contrast. But who hardens, whoever hardens his heart will fall into calamity. So what needs to be in your heart? Fear in the Lord always. You're not always fearing the Lord. What is your heart susceptible to? A hardening. Where does that hardening lead you? Falling into calamity. So the healthy heart looks at that and says, ooh, that could be me. That could easily be me. I don't want to fall into calamity. That's not good for me. It's not good for my loved ones. It's not good for my church members, fellow church members. It's not good for the Lord. So no wonder we're exhorted to live in the fear of the Lord. Proverbs 23, 17, let not your heart envy sinners. What's the antidote? But continue in the fear of the Lord all the day. Now that's a commentary on that fear of the Lord always. All the day. I think it's easy to begin the day fearing the Lord. You get up, you have some time with the Lord. I hope you do. You read the chapter of Proverbs that corresponds with, uh, with the day of the month. You read Proverbs 18 this morning. One of the little things that allows me to do this morning, uh, Proverbs uh, said, if you find a wife, you found a good thing from the Lord. So I sent my wife a text and I said, she's a good thing, which she is. Just a real small token of my expression of appreciation and love for my wife. A good reminder that my wife has a gift from the Lord. I need to treat her as that good thing that she is because God's declared itself. But anyway, you, it's easy to get up in the morning and start with the fear of the Lord but as the day wears on and you begin to get bombarded with the world, the flesh, and the devil, unless I stay in the fear of the Lord, my heart may go to bad places. And according to this verse, <clears throat> envy sinners. Look upon another lifestyle that looks very attractive, very appealing. Oh, there's that guy that has a house at the beach and all he does is beach come all day long and ride the waves when they're good. That's very attractive to me. If that's all I want, I'm probably not continuing in the fear of the Lord all the day. Because if nothing I desire compares with you, that means that built into my life will be some sense of what it looks like to serve and glorify God, not on my own terms, but on the Lord's. So failure to resist, especially all the day, gives sin a tighter grip on our hearts. This is what Proverbs seems to teach. The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him. He's held fast by the cords of his sin. So sin is a snare, and the more you give into it, the tighter that gets, like a boa constrictor, just squeezing the life gradually out of its prey. Sin, sin wants to squeeze the spiritual life out of you, and then it becomes a snare. Proverbs 29.6, an evil man is ensnared in his transgression. So you, you, you can't give yourself over to sin and not get in a trap. It's impossible. 
but a righteous man sings and rejoices. At least for what reason? Because the righteous man isn't experiencing the terror, the trap of the snare. It's no fun to be snared. When you're snared, you become prey to all different kinds of things. Well, sin opens us up to all different kinds of other kinds of evil. Sing and rejoice. So we need to come clean with the Lord constantly to break the power of the snare. And here's Proverbs 28, 13. Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper. Whoever confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. So come clean, confess, forsake. Confess is to agree with the Lord, that's sin. I am desiring something more than you when I do that, when I give in to that, when I think that way, when I speak that way. And forsaking them is repentance. It's turning your back on them. It's refusing to give them title to your, to, to your heart. Turn your back on them. Turn away from the luster. <clears throat> the Proverbs, Proverbs uh, warns us about the young man getting entrapped by the adulterous woman. He just, you don't go near her house. Stay away. Don't look. Don't listen. Don't let, don't be captured by her beauty. That's a picture <clears throat> of sin capturing you by its initial allure and attraction. But then it captures you and it keeps you in a slavery. <clears throat> so we may wonder if the writer of Hebrews, so familiar as he was with the Old Testament, didn't have these verses in mind when he wrote in Hebrews three twelve to 13, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. What question should you ask yourself when you read that? Could that be me? Could that be me? What's the state of my heart? But exhort one another every day. So the writer of Hebrews, the same writer who says, don't forsake your assembling together, envisions a quality of life where we are on a regular basis encouraging and exhorting one another. We need one another. Not fighting against each other's sins, but together fighting against our own sin. Because it's one struggler showing another struggler how to find hope and encouragement and grace. Never could you know Jesus deeply and think you were above falling into that sin that other person fell into. Of course you could. that none of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, right? So you hear echoes, hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. How sin deceiving you? Oh, this is just fine. It's not going to hurt you. Yes, it will. It's going to put you in a jail, in a trap. So left unchecked, sin will work a hardening in our hearts daily. It will deceive us in various ways at every turn, both passively and actively. So sin will deceive you passively if you simply do nothing to feed your heart, protect your heart, fill your heart with grace and truth, just as that bread, just as bread left exposed to air will always get harder and harder and harder. Do nothing to your heart, it's going to harden. So you can deceive yourself passively. Sin can deceive you passively by you doing nothing. Just assume if you're doing nothing to watch over and guard and protect your heart, sin's working on it for the worst. Just assume that. Or actively, and that is when we give in to temptation, just like you can't pick up briars with your bare hands and those briars not, those thorns of the briars not puncture you. So that's, that's what happens when we give in to temptation. So how do you recognize sin's relentless 
encroachment at work in your soul. Well, you could write books and books and books about that. But let me just show you a couple indicators uh, for you to think about and apply to your own heart and your own situation. What are some indicators that sin's relentless encroachment is at work in your soul? So you want to do a flyover and a, uh, uh, you're at war and you, you're, going to get, you're going to send a drone up and that drone's going to give you a scouting out. Where's the enemy? Where are they moving? What is their position? How are you being surrounded? What are they planning to do? Get that intel beamed down to you from the drone so you can identify how the enemy's trying to work. So sin is seeking its relentless encroachment in your soul. Different for different people. Going to depend on your experience, your personality, your temperament, the different kinds of things that you value, on and on and on. It's going to be different. But it's true for all of us. All of us, indwelling sin, wants to work its relentless encroachment in our souls. Here's some indicators that sin is closing in on you, on, on, in on the vitality of your heart. Coldness of heart towards the Lord. So have you ever just sort of woken up to the fact, not in the morning necessarily, just said to yourself, I'm just, I'm not warm towards the Lord. I'm distracted. I'm uh, preoccupied. I'm not thinking about the Lord. I'm engrossed in other things. Good things, but there's just a coldness. Again, our corporate worship is to light the flame again. And your personal worship all week long is to fan the flame of that fire. And as that fire is flamed all week long, guess what you have to bring to Sunday morning worship? The fire of worship. And you probably heard me say this, forget about COVID for a second, but when churches gather and every participant in the corporate worship service has been fanning that flame in personal worship all week long, you will know it. You will see it. And this is a church that loves to sing its praises to the Lord. Very encouraging. Coldness of heart towards the Lord. Indifference to the plight of the destitute. So you just, you're easy to turn an eye to the you have somebody in need. And what's the reality when God puts somebody in your path who's destitute or in need? Well, it's a picture of what you were spiritually apart from saving grace. That's what it should remind you of. And so reluctance to part with our resources, being greedy, hoarding, um, extreme measures of playing it safe. No, a heart that's been filled with the lavish self-sacrificing love of Jesus does the same thing. It becomes lavish and self-sacrificial. Slowness to offer praise and thanks. Feeling distance from the word of God. Casual attitude towards sin. Feeling superior, critical of others. That tends to be propping us up in a way to make us feel good about ourselves in comparison to others, which is driven by a false sense of self-righteousness, isn't it? Because if you've gone before Jesus, seen how much you need him, 
reminded yourself of the gospel promise that he clothes you in his righteousness as a gift by mercy you're far less inclined to feel superior to other people because you know what you deserved unabated strong emotions such as fear anxiety and anger so I'm not in a good place spiritually when I'm overrun with fear overrun with anxiety overrun with anger God allows these strong emotions to open a window on our heart to say, Mike, look, there's, a, there's something going on in you that you're demanding of life that only I can give you that's out of your control, which is why you're angry, which is why you're anxious, which is why you're fearful. Thank God the gospel answers these deep emotions at a profound level, not perfectly in this life. We're all going to struggle with these things. I, I, you know, years ago when we lived in Texas, we would fly back and have some vacation time in the east and often visit my folks who lived in Williamsburg in a very nice neighborhood. And it, you know, it was sort of a self-enclosed community with bike trails and a pool and, a, and a access to a little nine-hole chip and putt golf thing. And, you know, I, I, I would often go there and, and leave visiting their neighborhood and staying with them and just be, just have my heart just uh, dripping with envy. Like, that's the life I want. Rather than thanking God for the life he'd called me to and the ministry he'd given me and the unspeakable privilege of pastoring a church and being thankful for my wife and my kids and who they are and how they are. So I, I I think I would call it Kingsmill disease. It's a community in Williamsburg called Kingsmill on the James. And I would leave there with Kingsmill disease. I wasn't in my right mind. I was seduced, right? I, I guess I wasn't protecting my heart sufficiently in that situation. None of those things are bad. God can call Christians to live in those communities and God can call Christians to enjoy those things and have a vital relationship with him. It's all your attitude towards them, what you're telling yourself that you need and what you ultimately, everything that God gives us, we, we hold with open hands. So it's no wonder then Proverbs 4.23 says, keep your heart with all vigilance for from it flow the springs of life. I mean, many of us keep our retirement accounts with all vigilance. We're looking at how the stock market's doing today. We're wondering about the impact of the election on stocks and finance, all this kind of stuff. We're vigilant over our resources. Nothing inherently wrong with that. As long as we're first applying that kind of care to our hearts. So are you, am I more concerned with how my lawn looks than my heart? Am I concern, more concerned with how clean my kitchen is than how clean my heart is. Am I more concerned with fill in the blank? What is it that tempts you to be distracted and preoccupied with the most important thing? Your heart. From it flow the springs of life. Life for you. Well, life from Jesus for you and not just for you. Those springs are meant to bring refreshing to others as well. So my failure to watch over my heart has a social cost to it. 
I'm going to stop screen sharing and pray for you. All right, let's pray. Again, Lord, I thank you for my brothers and sisters, um, their love for you, your love for them, their interest in the word of God, their care for their own sanctification. Lord Jesus, what we're really doing here, as we saw a couple weeks ago, is we're, we're seeking an answer to your prayer for us in John 17. Father, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. So we thank you for the sanctifying work of the Spirit. We thank you for the sanctifying work of the Word of God. We thank you for the sanctifier, Jesus, through His Spirit, making us like Him. You who, Lord, you resisted sin to the, to, the, to the point of shedding your own blood. And so work this grace in us that this spring of life, this water, this life, may bring blessing to others. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thank you all for attending. Thank you for all that wisdom. My pleasure.